Chapter ninety three of Varney the Vampire, Volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lucy Perry. Varney the Vampire, Volume two, by Thomas Prescott Prest. Chapter ninety three. The alarm at Anderbury, the suspicions of the Bannerworth family, and the mysterious communication. About twenty miles to the southward of Bannerworth Hall was a good-sized market-town, called Anderbury. It was an extensive and flourishing place, and from the beauty of its situation and its contiguity to the southern coast of England, it was much admired, and, in consequence, numerous mansions and villas of great pretension had sprang up in its immediate neighbourhood. Besides, there were some estates of great value, and one of these, called Anderbury on the Mount, in consequence of the mansion itself, which was of an immense extent being built upon an eminence, was to be let or sold. This town of Anderbury was remarkable not only for the beauty of its aspect, but likewise for the quiet serenity of its inhabitants, who were a prosperous, thriving race, and depended very much upon their own resources. There were some peculiar circumstances why Anderbury on the Mount was to let, it had been, for a great number of years, in possession of a family of the name of Milltown, who had resided there in great comfort and respectability, until an epidemic disorder broke out, first among the servants, and then spreading to the junior branches of the family, and from them to their seniors, produced such devastation that in the course of three weeks there was but one young man left of the whole family, and he, by native vigour of constitution, had baffled the disorder and found himself alone in his ancestral halls the last of his race. Soon a settled melancholy took possession of him, and all that had formerly delighted him now gave him pain, inasmuch as it brought to his mind a host of recollections of the most agonising character. In vain was it that the surrounding gentry paid him every possible attention, and endeavoured to do all that was in their power to alleviate the unhappy circumstances in which he was placed. If he smiled, it was in a sad sort, and that was very seldom, and at length he announced his intention of leaving the neighbourhood and seeking abroad, and in change of scene, for that solace which he could not expect to find in his ancestral home after what had occurred within its ancient walls. There was not a chamber but which reminded him of the past, there was not a tree or plant of any kind or description but which spoke to him plainly of those who were now no more, and whose merry laughter had within his own memory made that ancient place echo with glee, filling the sunny air with the most gladsome shouts, such as comes from the lips of happy youth long before the world has robbed it of any of its romance or beauty. There was a general feeling of regret when this young man announced the fact of his departure to a foreign land, for he was much respected, and the known calamities which he had suffered, and the grief under which he laboured, invested his character with a great and painful interest. An entertainment was given to him upon the eve of his departure, and on the next day he was many miles from the place, and the estate of Anderbury on the Mount was understood to be sold or let. The old mansion had remained, then, for a year or two vacant, for it was a place of too much magnitude, and required by far too expensive an establishment to keep it going, to enable any person whose means were not very large to think of having anything to do with it. So, therefore, it remained unlet, and wearing that gloomy aspect which a large house, untenanted, so very quickly assumes. It was quite a melancholy thing to look upon it, and to think what it must have once been, and what it might be still, compared to what it actually was, and the inhabitants of the neighbourhood had made up their minds that Anderbury on the Mount would remain untenanted for many a year to come, and perhaps, ultimately, fall into ruin and decay. But in this they were doomed to be disappointed, for, on the evening of a dull and gloomy day, about one week after the events we have recorded as taking place at Bannerworth Hall and its immediate neighbourhood, a travelling carriage with four horses and an outrider came dashing into the place and drew up at the principal inn in the town which was called the anderbury arms 
The appearance of such an equipage, although not the most unusual thing in the world, in consequence of the many aristocratic families who resided in the neighbourhood, caused, at all events, some sensation, and perhaps the more so because it drove up to the inn instead of to any of the mansions of the neighbourhood, thereby showing that the stranger, whoever he was, came not as a visitor, but either merely baited in the town, being on his road somewhere else, or had some special business in it which would soon be learned. The outrider, who was in handsome livery, had galloped on in advance of the carriage a short distance, for the purpose of ordering the best apartments in the inn to be immediately prepared for the reception of his master. "'Who is he?' asked the landlord. "'It's the Baron Stolmoyer Salzburg.' "'Bless my heart! I have never heard of him before. Where did he come from? Somewhere abroad, I suppose.' I can't tell you anything of him further than that he is immensely rich and is looking for a house. He has heard that there is one to let in this immediate neighbourhood, and that's what has brought him from London, I suppose. Yes, there is one, and it is called Anderbury on the Mount. Well, he will very likely speak to you about it himself, for here he comes. By this time the carriage had halted at the door of the hotel, and, the door being opened and the steps lowered, there alighted from it a tall man attired in a kind of pelisse or cloak, trimmed with rich fur, for the body of it being composed of velvet. Upon his head he wore a travelling cap, and his fingers, as he grasped the cloak around him, were seen to be covered with rings of great value. Such a personage, coming in such style, was, of course, likely to be honoured in every possible way by the landlord of the inn, and accordingly he was shown most obsequiously to the handsomest apartment in the house, and the whole establishment was put upon the alert to attend to any orders he might choose to give. He had not been long in the place when he had sent for the landlord, who, hastily scrambling on his best coat and getting his wife to arrange the tie of his neckcloth, proceeded to obey the orders of his illustrious guest, whatever they might chance to be. He found the Baron Stolmoy reclining upon a sofa, and having thrown aside his velvet cloak, trimmed with rich fur, he showed that underneath it he wore a costume of great richness and beauty, although, certainly, the form of it covered was not calculated to set off to any great advantage for the baron was merely skin and bone, and looked like a man who had just emerged from a long illness, for his face was ghastly pale, and the landlord could not help observing that there was a strange peculiarity about his eyes, the reason of which he could not make out. "'You are the landlord of this inn, I presume,' said the baron, "'and consequently, no doubt, well acquainted with the neighbourhood.' "'I have the honour to be all that, sir. I have been here about sixteen years, and in that time I certainly ought to know something of the neighbourhood.' "'Tis well.' Someone told me there was a little cottage sort of place to let here, and as I am simple and retired in my habits, I thought that it might possibly suit me. A little cottage, sir? There are certainly little cottages to let, but not such as would suit you, and if I might have presumed, sir, to think, I should have considered Anderbury on the Mount, which is now to let, would have been the place for you. It is a large place, sir, and belonged to a good family, although they are now all dead and gone, except for one, and it's he who wants to let the old place. Anderbury on the Mount, said the Baron was the name of the place mentioned to me, but I understood it was a little place. Oh, sir, that is quite a mistake. Who told you so? It's the largest place about here. There are a matter of twenty-seven rooms in it, and it stands altogether upon three hundred acres of ground. And have you the assurance, said the Baron, to call that anything but a cottage, when the castle of the Stolmoyers at Salzburg has one suite of reception rooms, thirty in number, opening into each other, and the total number of apartments in the whole building is two hundred and sixty. It is surrounded by eight miles of territory." "'The devil!' said the landlord. "'I beg your pardon, sir, but when I am astonished I generally say the devil. "'They want eight hundred pounds a year for Anderbury on the Mount. "'A mere trifle. I will sleep here to-night, and in the morning I will go and look at the place. "'Is it near the sea?' "'Half a mile, sir, exactly from the beach, "'and one of the most curious circumstances of all connected with it is "'that there is a subterranean passage from the grounds leading right away down to the sea-coast. 
A most curious place, sir, partly put out of the cliff, with cellars in it for wine and other matters, that in the height of summer are kept as cool as in the deep winter-time. It's more for curiosity than use, such a place, and the old couple that now take care of the house make a pretty penny, I'll be bound, though they won't own to it, by showing that part of the place. It may suit me, but I shall be able to give a decisive answer when I see it on the morrow. You will let my attendants have what they require, and see that my horses be well looked to. Certainly, oh, certainly, sir, of course. You might go far indeed, sir, before you found an inn where everything would be done as things are done here. Is there anything in particular, sir, you would like for dinner? How could I tell that idiot until the dinner-time arrives? Well, but, sir, in that case, you know, we scarcely know what to do, because you see, sir, you understand. It is very strange to me that you can neither see nor understand your duty. I am accustomed to having the dinner-table spread with all that money can procure, that I choose, but not before, what it suits me to partake of. Well, sir, that is a very good way, and perhaps we ain't quite so used to that sort of thing as we ought to be in these parts. But another time, sir, we shall know better what we are about, without a doubt. And I only hope, sir, that we shall have you in the neighbourhood for a long time. And so, sir, putting one thing to another, and then drawing a conclusion from both of them, you see, sir, you will be able to understand. Peace! Be gone! What is the use of all this bellowing to me? I want it not, I care not for it! The Baron spoke these words so furiously that the landlord was rather terrified than otherwise, and left the room hastily, muttering to himself that he had never come across such a tiger, and wondering where the Baron could possibly have come from, and what amount of wealth he could be possessed of that would enable him to live in such a princely style as he mentioned. If the Baron Stolmoyer of Salzburg had wished ever so much to impress upon the minds of all the persons in the neighbourhood the fact of his wealth and importance, he could not have adopted a better plan to accomplish that object than by first of all impressing such facts upon the mind of the landlord of the Anderbury Arms. For in the course of another hour it was tolerably well spread all over the town that never had there been such a guest at the Anderbury Arms, and that he had called Anderbury on the Mount, with all its rooms, all its outbuildings, and its three hundred acres of ground, a cottage. This news spread like wildfire, awakening no end of speculation, and giving rise to the most exaggerated rumours, so that a number of persons came to the inn on purpose to endeavour to get a look at the baron. But he did not stir from his apartments, so that these wonder-mongers were disappointed, and even forced to go away as wise as they came. But in the majority of cases they made up their minds that in the morning they should surely be able to obtain a glimpse of him, which was considered a great treat, for a man with an immense income is looked upon in England as a natural curiosity. The landlord took his guest at his word as regards to the dinner, and provided such a repast as seldom indeed graced the board at the Anderbury Arms, a repast sufficient for twenty people, and certainly which was a monstrous thing to set before one individual. The baron, however, made no remark, but selected a portion from some of the dishes, and these dishes that he did select from were of the simplest kind, and not such as the landlord expected him to take, so that he really paid about one hundred times the amount he ought to have done for what actually passed his lips. And then what a fidget the landlord was in about his wines, for he doubted not but such a guest would be extremely critical and hard to please. But, to his great relief, the baron declined taking any wine, merely washing down his repast with a tumbler of cool water, and then, although the hour was very early, he retired at once to rest. The landlord was not disposed to disregard the injunction which the baron had given him to attend carefully on his servants and horses, and after giving orders that nothing should be stinted as regarding the latter, he himself looked after to the creature comforts of the former, and he did this with a double motive, for not only was he anxious to make the most he could out of the baron in the way of charges, but he was positively panting with curiosity to know more about so singular a personage, and he thought that surely the servants must be able to furnish him with some particulars regarding their eccentric master. In this, however, he was mistaken, for although they told him all they knew, that amounted to so little as really not to be worth the learning. 
They informed him that they had been engaged all in the last week, and that they knew nothing of the Baron whatever, or where he came from, or what he was, excepting that he paid them the most liberal wages, and was not very exacting in the service he required of them. This was very unsatisfactory, and when the landlord started on a mission, which he considered himself bound to perform, to a Mr. Leake in the town, who had the letting of Anderbury on the Mount, he was quite vexed to think what a small amount of information he was able to carry to him. I can tell him, he said to himself, as he went quickly towards the agent's residence, I can tell him the Baron's name, and that in the morning he wants to look at Anderbury on the Mount, but that's all I know of him, except that he is a most extraordinary man, indeed, the most extraordinary that I ever came near. Mr. Leake, the house-agent, notwithstanding the deficiency of the facts contained in the landlord's statement, was well enough satisfied to hear that any one of apparent wealth was inquiring after the large premises to let, for, as he said truly to the landlord, "'The commission on letting and receiving the rentals of such a property is no joke to me.' "'Precisely,' said the landlord. "'I thought it was better to come and tell you at once, for there can be no doubt that he is enormously rich.' If that may be satisfactorily proved, it's of no consequence what he is or who he is, and you may depend I shall be round to the inn early in the morning to attend upon him, and in that case, perhaps, if you have any conversation with him, you will be so good as to mention that I will show him over the premises at his own hour, and you shall not be forgotten, you may depend, if any arrangement is actually come to. It will be just as well for you to tell him what a nice property it is, and that it is to be let for eight hundred a year, or sold outright for eight thousand pounds. I will, you may depend, Mr. Leake. A most extraordinary man you will find him, not the handsomest in the world, I can tell you, but handsome is as handsome does, say I, and if he takes Anderbury on the Mount, I have no doubt that he will spend a lot of money in the neighbourhood, and we shall all be the better of that, of course, as you well know, sir. This, then, was thoroughly agreed upon between these two high-contracting powers, and the landlord returned home very well satisfied indeed with the position in which he had put the affair, and resolved upon urging on the Baron, as far as it lay within his power to do so to establish himself in the neighbourhood, and to allow him to be purveyor in general to his household, which, if the baron continued in his liberal humour, would be unquestionably a very pleasant post to occupy. End of chapter 93 Recording by Lucy Perry In Bath, on the 17th of February, 2009